Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On this episode of Alert, we'll speak with Jim Stanford, who's the ex- economist with the Canadian Auto Workers, about the current global economic situation. And we'll also hear from epidemiologist Ernest Drucker about his new book, A Plague of Prisons, The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration in America. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of September 15, 2011. Preempting the 10th anniversary of the attacks on September 11, 2001, Prime Minister Harper said late last week his government plans on bringing back two controversial anti-terrorism clauses that sunset in 2007. One clause allows police to arrest and detain individuals without charges or a warrant if police believe a terrorist act may have been committed. The other clause allows judges to force a witness to testify in secret under penalty of going to jail if they don't comply. Harper announced these plans shortly after saying that Islamicism is the biggest threat Canada faces today. Unions in Italy mounted a general strike last Tuesday to protest more proposed austerity measures in an effort to restore Italy's economy. Airport workers, bus drivers, and public service workers demand that the political elite sacrifice some of their perks and privileges rather than make the working class pay for the economic crisis. The 45.5 billion euro austerity measures package is set for a vote in Italy's lower house of parliament this week after being approved by Senate late Wednesday. Palestinians are planning to propose a statehood bid at the United Nations General Assembly later this month. A spokesperson for Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas said they are requesting full membership status in order to, quote, protect the rights of Palestinian people and support a two-state solution, unquote. The bid has received support from over 100 members of the non-aligned movement after the group held a two-day meeting in Serbia. The United States has said they would veto any full membership bid from the Palestinians. An upgrade to non-member state would require a simple majority of the General Assembly. The RCMP is sharing Canadians' personal records of mental illness with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. CBC News reports that within the past year, the Psychiatric Patient Advocate Office in Toronto has received dozens of complaints from Canadians denied U.S. entry because of their mental health history. If a person's mental health is the perceived cause of a problem involving police, this information is entered into the Canadian Police Information Centre, a database a WikiLeaks cable showed is accessible by American authorities. This form of information sharing further contributes to the myth that people with mental health issues are potential threats to others or criminals. Unions will no longer have a weighted vote in leadership conventions for the federal New Democratic Party. Interim party leader Nicole Turmel announced the decision ahead of the federal council meeting last week, where it was also decided to host the leadership convention in Toronto next March. The NDP use a one-member, one-vote system, and until now, affiliated unions were given 25% of the vote. Those are the alert headlines for the week of September 15, 2011. 
now for Around the Left for the week of September 15, 2011. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East invites you to join the Boycott Israel campaign to pressure Israel to respect human rights and cease its occupation of Palestinian land. Each month, the campaign focuses on one consumer target and one cultural target. For September 2011, the campaign is targeting Canadian Tire, which sells products from a company that manufactures some products in illegal Israeli colonies, and the Swedish music duo Roxette, who are performing in Tel Aviv in October. To find out more, visit cjpme.org. In Vancouver, on Saturday, September 17th, join the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre Power of Women group in the 5th Annual March for Women's Housing and March Against Poverty. Meet at 1.30pm at Cordova and Columbia. March for social housing, childcare and healthcare for all, for an end to evictions and gentrification in the Downtown Eastside, and for an end to the criminalization of the poor. All genders are welcome and celebrated. The march is child-friendly and there will be a rest vehicle for elders. For more information, email project at dewc.ca. Also in Vancouver, on Saturday, September 17th at 4 p.m. after the march, come to the downtown east side block party to block condos on the 100 block. Enjoy music, food, and the last bit of summer sun while you protest the condo development at the old Pantages site. The downtown east side is not for developers to make millions. It is for our vibrant and vital low-income community. For more information, check out dtesnotfordevelopers.wordpress.com. Do you believe that community-based planning is vital for neighborhood design? On Saturday, September 17th, come to the Toronto City Builders Camp and explore how communities are taking charge of city building in their neighborhoods. This event takes place from 9.15 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. at the Urban Space Gallery. It is a free event, but attendees must pre-register at torontocitybuilderscamp.eventbrite.com as space is limited. For more information, please contact aslam at cityecology.net. The Palestinian Authority's September Statehood Initiative has led to a great deal of discussion and media coverage about Palestine, self-determination, and statehood. What does the Statehood Initiative really mean? What are its implications for the Palestinian struggle and the Palestinian people? In Vancouver, join the Boycott Israeli Apartheid Campaign on September 18th from 2 o'clock p.m. to 4.30 p.m. for a teach-in and facilitated discussion about these issues. Meet in the Alma Van Dusen Room of the Vancouver Public Library. For more information, email boycottapartheid at gmail.com. In Vancouver, the W2 Media Cafe will be presenting Defending Mother Earth from Cochabamba to Turtle Island. This information evening will take place September 23rd from 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. and will feature artists, speakers, food, and drink. That's all for Around the Left for the week of September 15th, 2011.
Over the past several weeks, we've seen wild fluctuations in the stock market, significant job losses, and other indicators suggesting that another recession is possible, if not likely. To help us diagnose the current economic situation, we are joined by Jim Stanford. Jim Stanford is an economist with the Canadian Auto Workers and a frequent interview guest on Alert. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, Michael. It's great to be back here. Great. Now, Jim, could you maybe give us uh, a bit of a clue as to what the factors are underpinning the current volatility in the markets? Well, you know, of course, that uh, most of the world was still trying hard to climb out of the mess that was left from the 2008-2009 financial crisis and uh, recession. Um, There had been a huge government uh, stimulus effort. Um, Governments around the world, including Canada, put huge amounts of money into job creation and other uh, sort of stabilization programs. That worked for a while. But now all the governments have shifted uh, away from stimulus and now are emphasizing austerity and cutbacks instead. And at the same time, there still isn't any underlying momentum in the private sector economy. So as the governments have turned off the taps, in essence, the economy is now uh, uh, declining once again, and we're very close to going back into a recession. Uh, That, of course, is exacerbated by some of the financial uncertainty surrounding the uh, European debt issues, the future of the euro, the U.S. debt ceiling debate, and so on. But the underlying problem is that we've never really recovered from the last recession, and governments are now turning off the taps, which means we could be headed into another recession. So... If, uh, if if I'm hearing you correctly, you're essentially saying it's it's the same factors that led us into the the 2008 recession that that uh, are leading us to potentially to another recession, and that the uh, the stimulus was only such as to 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 keep us in a kind of a stasis until the te- the, the the spending was turned off. Yeah, in a way that's true. I mean, the stimulus was effective while it lasted. Uh, it did lead to obviously very large deficits uh, and, and growing public debt in, in most countries of the world, but uh, that was fine as long as it was creating jobs and generating new income. And the, the hope of conventional economists had been that just that little bit of a push, if you like, would help the capitalist economy to get over this mm-hmm. rough spot, and then everything would start uh, firing on all cylinders again. The problem is that that hasn't happened. The underlying private sector economy is still mired in the um, hangover, if you like, from the financial excesses, the bubble economy, the subprime lending, the speculation that led up to the 2008 crisis in the first place. So government is stepping out of the action, but the private sector isn't filling in the void. And that's why universally in Europe, in America, and in in Canada, you're seeing growth uh, basically peter out to nothing or even negative. Well, is the idea then that we should have we just kept the stimulus going a little bit longer or until somehow the uh, i guess the private sector is able to catch up it was just a limited amount of spending or was it maybe the nature of the stimulus itself that wasn't maybe wasn't quite geared toward that i guess productive economy well in my view michael actually there's actually a, a more fundamental problem if you like a structural problem and that we needed We needed the stimulus, but we needed something more than stimulus. Stimulus alone was not going to cut it. Stimulus, I think of as kind of the short-term make-work money, the automatic uh, uh, income supports that go out through unemployment insurance and so on, some of the construction and infrastructure projects that we saw spring up for a couple of years. Stimulus, in essence, is a kind of a short-term temporary idea. 
and we had a couple of uh, years of it, and then government started turning off the taps. The problem is that we needed more than stimulus. I actually think that, that we need a pretty fundamental restructuring of the way that we pay for and finance economic growth and job creation. Uh, we can't rely on private businesses uh, to do it and to lead the way and to make sure that the jobs are there. They have clearly demonstrated that they're not doing that. It's not for a shortage of money. Corporations have got more money in the bank than they've had in their history, but they're hoarding that money. They're not reinvesting it. And so that's where we need government to do more than just short-term job creation. I actually think we need a long-run permanent expansion of the role of the public sector in our economy. We also need uh, a fundamental rethinking of how we manage the financial industry. And that uh, hasn't changed at all since 2008. There's been no serious uh, reckoning with the failures in terms of private finance and instability and speculation that created the problem. So on both grounds, uh, the need for long-run expansion of the public sector and the need for fundamental uh, regulation of the financial sector on both grounds, we haven't really learned the lesson from 2008, and that's why we're headed back into the soup. Well, uh, could, could you maybe comment then on uh, what, what you said earlier about the hoarding? What, what is what is it that's uh, getting people to to go that route as opposed to maybe the the, the direction that you're recommending? Yeah, it's, it's not just uh, people; it's it's the corporations mm. by and large, which. Uh, are earning good profits. In fact, in America, believe it or not, even though the American economy is in something like a depression, American corporate profits are at record highs, record highs, amidst all the human misery and dislocation that you see south of the border. That's, you know, that's morally wrong, as apart from, you know, in, in, in addition to being uh, economically ineffective. In Canada, uh, corporate profits are very high, and, uh, and in Europe, uh, they're, they're, they're strong as well. But companies are not reinvesting the money, which is how capitalism is supposed mm -hmm. to work. You know, the whole sort of trickle-down theory is if you reward corporations uh, and, and well-off people at the top with uh, the leer of very lucrative profits, then they will invest and that will create jobs and we'll all be better off. That argument is never convincing. But right now, the fundamental link in the chain is broken. They are well off, but they aren't reinvesting the money. They're sitting on it. That's where, in, in, you know, in a very fundamental way, the whole profit motive system is, uh, is showing a, a fundamental failure. Mm. Uh, profits are there, but corporations well, can aren't you say, investing. Can you say why that's happening, why it's not being I'm not invested? sure if anybody knows to tell you the truth, Michael. I mean, it, it's, again, it's not for the lack of incentive. It's clearly um, related in, in some way to corporate uh, fears that, you know, even if they do invest, there won't be anyone to buy the products that they make with their new capacity. It's kind of a coordination failure, uh, if you like, that's, I think, an essential feature of capitalism, where the system as a whole needs companies uh, to keep investing, but individual companies may not choose to invest if they don't think anyone's going to buy their products. Then by not investing, they bring about a self-fulfilling prophecy where there's not enough demand and nobody buys their products. So, uh, again, this is where you need a very different vision of public sector leadership, not just, you know, putting a Band-Aid on the, on the cycle and helping smooth out the rough patches, mm -hmm. but actually stepping in as the leading force, the leading agent in job creation and, and innovation and, and investment, mm -hmm. and given that the private sector isn't doing that job very well at all now. Well, we're, this seems to be a, a need to a call for new forms of regulations of, of the market. I mean, what, 
what are you thinking in, in particular is, is going to be needed to prevent this? Uh, well, in the financial things? side of things, we're certainly, certainly, uh, I'm calling for different visions of regulation, and, and then in the rest of the economy, in a way, I'm calling for the replacement of the market instead of relying on private companies to be the leading force in job creation. Let's uh, find other ways to do it. Let's let's create long-term permanent mm-hmm. jobs, not short-term make work projects, but long-term permanent jobs doing useful things in our communities. You know, whether that's infrastructure or transit or cleaning up the environment or libraries and schools and hospitals, um, that's a legitimate form of job creation and growth, and uh, and that's what we should do instead of sitting back unemployed waiting for companies to lead the way. In the financial sector, we clearly need regulations uh, to limit the uh, leveraging that goes on in the private credit system where a private bank starts with an initial amount of money from its investors and then multiplies it, uh, creating new money out of thin air 20 or 30 or 50 times over, uh, and then using that money to speculate on unproductive uh, paper assets, whether it's stocks, bonds, derivatives, uh, uh, or hedge hedge fund assets. Um, So we need, I think, uh, again, a very fundamental restructuring of how banks work and what we demand from banks. Uh, you know, in a way, Michael, this is, uh, I think, a, an opportunity for, for progressives to put forward a very far-reaching critique of how the system is working, not just in a, in a Band-Aid kind of way, but challenging the fundamental structures of our economy today. Well, <clears throat> as, <clears throat> excuse me. as you know, Jim Stanford, uh, progressives, particularly in Canada, have, have not uh, had a, a, a great... Um, uh, go at things. Uh, we have a, a conservative government that's actually taking a lot of uh, credit uh, for uh, being having Canada having survived the recession better than other countries. So I, I'm wondering uh, where Canada would fit into this picture in terms of what we could uh, realistically recommend. I mean, not only to our our government but to other parts of the world. Well, in terms of the uh, politics uh, federally, it's clear that the bloom is coming off uh, the flower. Remember, the Conservatives promised in that May election that they were the best economic managers, and that was crucial to them winning a majority government. Well, they got the majority government, and what's happened under their prudent economic stewardship? Nothing but bad news. Uh, We're losing jobs. The economy contracted in the second quarter and may contract in the third, and uh, we're clearly heading back into the soup. So, the whole claim that conservatives led us uh, to success through the recession was false. Uh, the reason Canada did better than America is because our banks didn't collapse. And the reason our banks didn't collapse is because we had stronger regulations that predated conservatives by, by decades. Also, the fact that we prevented foreign takeovers of our Canadian banks was crucial. And that's uh, total opposite of the sorts of policies that conservatives uh, espouse. So <clears throat> the... <clears throat> the conservative claim that they led us to, you know, uh, a more stable landing has uh, was never valid and is, is being proven false with every bit of bad news that comes out now. And again, this is where progressives, I think, in Canada should stop being on the defensive and start going on the offensive, pointing out the fundamental structural flaws in the in the private sector-dominated economy and saying that, you know, we don't need just a Band-Aid. We don't need just a little bit more stimulus. That won't do the trick. We had a lot of stimulus. And that didn't do the trick. What we really need is to rethink how we create jobs, how we pay for growth, how we decide what work we're going to do, and uh, how we uh, control finance. And, uh, well, I think that that 
pretty much uh, addresses a lot of the concerns we have right now. So um, if you maybe wanted to leave us with a, just a, a final 30-second uh, recommendation as to <clears throat> where we need to go at a time when all these other countries are, uh, like Greece, are, are faced with austerity programs. I mean, what what's the answer for uh, keeping us from going into a global recession? You know, our economic prosperity, Michael, ultimately depends on our ability to work, to produce uh, goods and services of value, and then to use those goods and services to improve our lives. And we should always keep our eyes on that prize. We shouldn't let all the mumbo-jumbo about investor confidence and, uh, and the financial markets and, and austerity and balanced budgets uh, obscure the fact that we can work, we can produce useful stuff, and we can create good lives for ourselves and our communities and our environment. And uh, fundamentally, putting Canadians back to work to do that stuff should be our overarching demand. Okay. Well, on that note, Jim, we got to leave it there. But thank you very much for sharing those perspectives with us. Michael, I'm always glad to join you on Alert Radio. You do great work. Thanks a lot. Okay. And that was Jim Stanford as an economist with Canadian Auto Workers and a frequent interview guest on Alert Radio. Punishing regime, the criminal justice in Canada. Look for the September issue of Canadian Dimension on the newsstands. It's a special issue featuring six articles on Canada's criminal justice system. Stephen Harper's approach to crime is not only medieval, it's also costly and ineffective. Pick up this special issue of Canadian Dimension and read about alternative approaches. Also, what's really behind Stephen Harper's love affair with Israel? Freelance journalist Eve Engler has some answers. All this and much more in the September issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. Ernest Drucker is a scholar-in-residence and senior research associate at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, City University of New York. In his new book, A Plague of Prisons, The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration in America, Ernest Strucker applies basic public health concepts to compare the structure of the modern incarceration system, which has systematically imprisoned unprecedented numbers of men and women, to well-recognized epidemics from the past. Thanks for being with us today, Ernie. Happy to be here. So to start, what do you mean when you write that mass incarceration can become contagious? Well, uh, contagious means it can be transmitted from one person to another, it's catching, as you will. So what specific features account for the fact that entire communities are often entwined in the criminal justice system? Well, that, that's, the, that's the point, that uh, the, the, the conditions that get you arrested and imprisoned are fostered by the conditions that having had your family members in prison, especially your parents, um, makes it more probable that you'll go to prison. And it's not, it's not an abstraction, uh, it's, it's quite concrete to the income and the, of, of a family goes down when a member goes to prison, the ability, uh, they're more often men than women, of course, about you know, 95 to 5, and, so, uh, and, and the people who are getting arrested and going to prison early on are young men. Uh, so it, you, you're removing this, this link in the, in the developmental chain for entire generations of families, like you used to talk about multi-generational welfare families same kind of multi-generation criminal justice families now. The vast majority of arrests uh, in New York City and elsewhere are for so-called quality-of-life crimes, such as loitering, vagrancy, marijuana possession. 
How does being picked up for an an offense like that often set the wheels in motion for a life controlled by the criminal justice system? I I think you put it very well. It sets the wheels in motion. It does it in specific ways. Essentially, that first you have a record, uh, which you computerize, and, and when they arrest you for even a minor offense like that, part of what they're doing quite consciously is screening a profiled population who are at high risk of being involved in criminal activity, drugs mainly, uh, to, uh, to be looked at by the police. Once they get their fingerprints, they run them through these big databases, and if they match, if there are any previous offenses, they sort of, they, they, they pick you out, and they, you, get, you get special treatment. If not, an arrest for one of these minor offenses often means a night in the police cell, getting brutalized by anybody who feels like it, and, uh, and a record. That record gets established. That, that record alone, even though they throw the case out, would be enough for you not to be able to get a job at Walmart. In our latest issue, Canadian Dimension magazine looks at Canada's criminal justice system. And we talk a lot about how the Harper government's proposed tough-on-crime program is heading us in the direction of a more U.S.-type system. Based on your examination of the U.S. system, is there any advice that you would give to Canadians? Don't go there. (laughs) Uh, You know, you have a really good negative example right across the border. It's been a complete catastrophe for this country in ways that are just beginning to dawn on them. A piece came out today that California is going to begin releasing almost all the women who are in prison because they're under court orders to reduce the prison size. And then they say, but the vast majority of them are these minor offenses. You know, they're they're nothing. So they're kind of admitting that uh, there's no justification for incarcerating people um, uh, and, and what you do by uh, sort of unhinging their lives, they have no options but to get involved in activities that, that make them uh, quite eligible for future imprisonment, and that's what happens. So, uh, the, but, but, I, but I think the Canadians have a, have a vaccine against this, actually, having worked there for five years, and that is uh, you have a sense of um, kind of fellowship among Canadians, uh, we're all Canadians, we're all in it. And that's broken down in the United States a lot. It's us and them. Many, many of us is and them, as you can see from the current political catfight going on. But um, that's the thing that allows you to do mass incarceration. Uh, the, um, a lot of countries in the world will not hear of it. They just they, they put a cap on the number of people in prison. De facto, that's what happens in Canada. Um, and uh, Harper hasn't thought about that. You know, because he's just exploiting this this opportunity to uh, to look tough, and um, and there are enough law enforcement people and enough policy people in Canada who know that about the United States. I can give you names if you want, uh, and I hope they'll start piping up about it. So, how might we use a public health model of prevention to attack the epidemic of mass incarceration? How can we reduce levels of imprisonment without compromising public safety? Well, the main way is to take the low-hanging fruit first, and that's exactly those offenses you mentioned before that are so prevalent in the United States. They're pretty prevalent in Canada also because they're the the people who create a public nuisance and a a sense of lawlessness. I've worked in Hastings Street in Vancouver, and, uh, and, and, and there's a very deliberate attempt on the part of Vancouver police who are much more sophisticated than most not to just make it an arrest mill, but most cities don't do that. You know, the skid row is the place where they go and they round up the usual suspects. And uh, there's no recognition that by running large numbers of people through that system, you, uh, you disable them in ways that pretty much guarantee they're going to become a long-term resident of your criminal justice system. 
So, and the data is in hand. It's there in Vancouver. It's there in Toronto. It's there in Montreal. Um, and uh, uh, the people who I know, very good people who work work with these issues, have tried to get across, but you know, they lost the election, right? Mm-hmm. What has been the response so far to your book? Pretty good, actually, outside the United States. <laughs> Not so much inside yet. We're hoping. Uh, the uh, uh, but but people appreciate it. the Economist actually did an, an interesting piece on it because uh, they've always been strong on the stupidity of the drug wars. It goes back to that. It, you know, it's like it wouldn't be that hard to explain to people that alcohol prohibition, Al Capone, all that was a disaster. People accept and understand that, and and because oh you can't you can't. But they the lesson they haven't they haven't taken away the lesson is that you can't prohibit things that people uh, want to do that are essentially harmless for anyone but them, with some exceptions. Um, you, you run into all kinds of terrible problems. You pose the state against individu- individuals in a way that's not productive. And uh, But when it gets to these drugs, this, they've been so demonized. Um, and and all, all the time, the, the awareness of the apparatus that gets constructed around a large and, and Valuable drug trade, the apparatus that gets good—that's that's the that's the disease, really, uh, because it propagates itself. It, it defends its turf. I mean, New Mexico is the poster child for that. Forty thousand homicides there in the last three or four years. So, uh, I think it has to be some version of, of of taking the the cases that everyone can agree. If, if the premise is that we that we shouldn't have so many people in prison, we shouldn't have we should have as few people in prison as possible. Obviously, there's some people who need to be protected from themselves. There are some people that we need to be protected from. That that was always true, and it's always going to be true. But but not millions and millions as we have in the United States. And Canada's held the line pretty well. Uh, and if you look at the crime statistics, they're generally better than the United States, even at the peak of incarceration. Uh, and um, uh, there has to be an insistence on reality. You can't just exploit this politically. That, that's, that's you know, one of our big problems here. Everything gets is, is, is an opportunity for slamming your opponent politically, even if it's a serious problem that we need to deal with, like we went through with the debt crisis, you know, the debt ceiling, sort of playing chicken with it. There's, uh, there's, there's, there's just not a lot of forward thinking possible in a, in a political climate like we have here now. Now, if you want to create that kind of climate in Canada... You're welcome to ours. (laughs) Well, I think on that note, we'll leave it there. Thank you for speaking with us today, and good luck with your book. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. We've been speaking with Ernest Drucker, author of the new book, A Plague of Prisons, The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration in America. Hi, I'm Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. This past Sunday, I spent a couple of hours watching some of the commemorative stuff about 9-11. The 10th anniversary was an obvious moment for these events to be staged right across North America. The big show was, of course, held in New York City, right beside Ground Zero. And Obama was there, and he dragged George Bush out of retirement to make an appearance. And almost the entire deal south of the border was wrapped in old glory and delivered in hushed reverence. Family members of the dead intoned the names of those that were killed. It was poignant. It was teary-eyed sad. Obama said a prayer. I saw a few minutes from the event in Pennsylvania, and then I saw a fascinating few moments 
from an event organized by Canadians at the International Peace Garden on the Manitoba-North Dakota border. Everything, everywhere was meant to be delivered in good taste. Watching these things, I ended up with two very contradictory feelings. I can't stand patriotism of any kind because every time some idiot gets patriotic, working people end up dead, racial minorities get seriously stepped on, and the rich get richer. Despite the patriotic tonality of these events, I couldn't keep my eye off the family members as they spoke. And also, I watched the live audience whenever the camera panned them. My view was only impressionistic, but I think that most of the people who attended those events did so out of respect for the people who died, and above all, for the firemen who knowingly risked their lives to try to save lives. For the government, it was an opportunity for propaganda. For the people, it was an honest moment of remembrance. Historically, the attack on a major symbol of American capitalism by essentially rogue elements of the pan-Arabian national bourgeoisie, these are the guys who don't want to be junior partners with the U.S. oil barons. These are the local guys who want to own the oil themselves. This just reinforced my understanding of class society. Workers almost always die fighting for the economic interests of their ruling classes in the case of 9-11, despite the fact that the workers in the complex were non-combatants, nothing could be truer. The Americans and their NATO allies call the perpetrators terrorists, which is a politically convenient way to label their economic rivals. I call the leadership of both sides the criminal bourgeoisie. Both sides are enemies of the working people, and both sides contributed equally to what started 10 years ago. I believe that we, who are of the working class, that we should be respectfully commemorating all the working and other folks who died on 9-11, not with jingoistic, patriotic, flag-waving blather, but with respect and with love. Here is Tom Paxton with The Bravest. The first plane hit the other tower right after I came in. They left a fiery gaping hole where offices had been We stood and watched in horror as we saw the first ones fall Then someone yelled, get out, get out, they're trying to kill us all I grabbed the pictures from my desk and joined a flight for life with every step I called the names of my children and my wife And then we heard them coming up from several floors below A crowd of firefighters with their heavy gear in tow Now every time I try to sleep I'm haunted by the sound a fireman pounding up the stairs while we were running down And when we met them on the stairs they said we were too slow Get out, get out, they yelled at us, the whole thing's gonna go They didn't have to tell us twice we'd seen the world on fire we kept on running down the stairs while they kept climbing high. Now every time I try to sleep, I'm haunted by the sound. 
A fireman pounding up the stairs while we were running down. Thank God we made it to the street. We ran through ash and smoke. I didn't know which way to run. I thought that I would choke. A fireman took me by the arm and he pointed me uptown. And Christ, I heard him whisper as the tower came roaring down. So now I go to funerals for men I never knew. The pipers play amazing graces. The coffins come in view. They must have seen it coming when they turned to face the fire. They sent us down to safety. Then they kept on climbing high. Now every time I try to sleep, I'm haunted by the sound. Firemen pounding up the stairs while we were running down. A fireman pounding up the stairs while we were running down.
people writing songs that voices never share and no one dare disturb the sound of silence fools said I you do not know silence like a cancer growing Hear my words that I might teach you Take my arms that I might reach out to you But my words like silent raindrops fell And echo in the wells of silence And the people bowed and prayed To the neon god they made And the sign flashed its warning And the words that it was for me They said the words of the prophets Are written on the subway walls And tenement halls Whispered in the sound of silence. That was Paul Simon in a solo performance of The Sound of Silence, recorded last Sunday at Ground Zero. Before that, Tom Paxton with The Bravest. The single most important result of 9-11 was that America attacked, felt confident enough to attack Afghanistan and then Iraq. The result of these useless adventures beside the current volume of carnage is that the people of these countries who, just like Americans and Canadians, don't want anybody telling them how to live. And because of people refusing to be ruled by invaders, these wars have the potential to go on for generations. The arms manufacturers that support the Republican and Democratic Party machines must really love this business opportunity. A better but bitter result of the war has been providing of gist for the songwriters. Here are two songs that really got to me. We'll start with Eliza Gillickson singing Man of God. Well, the cowboy came from out of the west With a snakeskin boots and his bulletproof vest Gang of goons and his big war chest Fortunate son, he was doubly blessed Corporate cronies and the chiefs of staff Bowing to the image of the golden calf Starting up wars in the name of God's son Gonna blow us all the way to kingdom come Man of God, man of God That ain't the teachings of a God, man of God, man of God, that ain't the preachings of a man of God. 
judgmental patricians, politicians, and the fundamentalists. You never have to tell them how the money is spent. You never have to tell them where their freedom went. Homophobes in the high command, waiting for the rapture like it's Disneyland. Hide all the bodies from out of view. Channel all the treasure to the chosen few. Seeing us everywhere As far as the eye can see It's like a river Overflowing We got Muslims We got Christians We got pagans We got Jews We got atheists Anarchists Socialists We've even got a liberal or two On the day we all said stop the war On the day We all said stop the war We got kefirs, we got t-shirts 
hijabs and rainbow scarves. We got placards that say we're angry. We got placards that make you laugh. We got whistles, badges, banners, 10,000 djembes and a salsa band. We got pensioners, we got pushchairs, arm in arm and hand in hand. On the day we all said stop the war. On the day we all said stop the war. We got the actress and the bishop. We got tankies, we got trucks. And some got extra sandwiches in case their mates forgot. We got respectable housewives from suburbia who've never done this sort of thing before. With the international sex workers of the world united and the girl and the boy next door on the day. We all said stop the war On the day We all said stop the war We got that what's her name from off of the telly We got that bloke I met called Steve But we are more than just this two million We are Ramallah and Tel Aviv we are New York, Paris, Berlin, Moscow, Cape Town, Cairo, Bangkok to Glasgow. It's like some river overflowing. On the day we all said stop the war. On the day we all said stop the war. On the day. We all said stop the war On the day We all said stop the war I keep seeing us everywhere I keep seeing us everywhere Well, that's New York, Paris, Berlin, Moscow, Cape Town, Cairo, Bangkok to Glasgow. That's it for this week, folks. I promise that next week the show won't be so depressing. In fact, next week we'll do some social comedy. I'm Mitch Pedalik. Solidarity. Well... That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Andrew Valpi, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension.
Thank you.